Good morning. That was really enthusiastic. <laughs> I hope you feel better than you sound. So take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 14. Job chapter 14. I jumped into the New Testament last week, and you may be thinking, why are we going back to the Old Testament? Well, I'll tell you why in a little bit. Job chapter 14, if you're not familiar with the book of Job, let me give you a brief synopsis of it. In the very first chapter you meet Job, he, a man that lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, upright, he feared God, he turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, a lot of servants. A day came when the sons of God appeared before him, and Satan arrived also. And God asked Satan, where have you been? And he said, roaming to and fro across the earth. And God said, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. He's upright. He serves me. He fears God. He turns away from evil. And Satan says, well, he serves you for nothing. You've built this protective hedge around him, and you won't let anybody touch him. But if you let me take away his possessions, he'll turn and curse you to your face. And God said, go. You can lay your hand on everything that he has. Just don't touch him. And in one day, Job loses everything. All of his flocks, all of his herds, all of his servants, and all of his children. And Job falls to the ground and worships God. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. He said, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of that, Job did not sin. So another day comes when the sons of God appear before him, and God looks, and here's Satan again. He says, where have you been? Well, I've been roaming to and fro across the earth. Well, have you considered my servant Job? He's a blameless and upright man. He turns away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity even though you incited me against him and he took away everything he had. He still fears me. He still walks in faith. And Satan said, skin for skin, a man will, you know, a man will give anything for his life. You didn't let me touch him. Go then. You can touch him. Just spare his life. And Satan goes and afflicts Job with boils. And Job's wife, I started to say Satan's wife. Woo. Job's wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job says, shall we accept good from God and not adversity? And even in all of that, Job did not sin. Maintained his integrity. And so when Job's some of Job's friends, three of them in particular, hear about what has happened to Job. They come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. But they couldn't do it because each one of them basically told Job that, Job, you had to have sinned. That's the reason that, that God is punishing you. God doesn't just inflict punishment on people for no reason. Job, you had to have done something wrong. But Job knew that he hadn't. Knew that he hadn't sinned in that way. And so Job chapter 3 begins this dialogue with his three friends. One friend would speak and then Job would answer him. And so the whole rest of the book until you get over to about chapter 38 or so 
is this dialogue between Job's friends and himself. And so when you get over to Job chapter 14, and Job here is he's replying to his friend Zophar. Zophar in chapter 11, in essence, has told Job, just stop lying, Job. Stop lying. You've sinned. There's no other explanation for what you're going through. And in Job chapter 12 through 14, Job is answering Zophar's charges. And, and Job comes to the point, he's in such distress that he says, oh, that, that God would just hide me in Sheol where the dead people go until his anger passes by me. And in the midst of his distress, Job asks this question, our question of the day. If a man dies, will he live again? Now understand, Job lived before Calvary. He lived before the cross. In fact, the book of Job may be the oldest book in the Bible. Many scholars believe that. And we really don't know for sure what Job would have believed about eternity, about a resurrection, about life after death. And it could be that in the midst of his distress that the answer Job expects to hear is no. If a man dies, he will live again. If a man dies, how can he praise God anymore? How can he worship God anymore? How can he bring sacrifices to the Lord anymore? How can he do anything anymore if he's dead? If a man dies, will he live again? Well, no. That may have been the answer that Job expected to hear. But aren't you glad we live on this side of the cross? Because we know that answer to that question is what? Absolutely yes. If a man dies, he will live again. So let's stand and sing our hymn of decision. And <laughs> you know better than that. Okay. There's life after death. There's a resurrection of the dead. Just, and it's all because of Jesus. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we shall all be raised from the dead as well. That last song we sang for communion, were you there when, they, when he rose up from the grave and Andy's sharing in his meditation? Just, yeah, Jesus is risen from the dead and we praise God that this world is not all there is. There's something far better. We're promised a resurrection from the dead. And it's all because of Jesus. So now take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 2. In John chapter 2. Because here we're going to see Jesus promise the resurrection. He promises the resurrection. Jesus arrives here in Jerusalem for the first time since his ministry begins. He comes to the city during the Passover feast. He goes to the temple. But when he arrives there, we don't really see this Messiah of love that we read about and we sing about. But rather we see him full of righteous fury. Why? Well, because of what he finds there. In fact, in his own words, he says they've turned his father's house into a den of thieves. And he was right. Annas was the official high priest at that time in Israel, a tremendously powerful and incredibly wealthy man, and he gained a lot of his wealth from the sale of concessions there at the temple. Basically the sale of two things, animals 
and the exchange of money. Because these pilgrims would come to Jerusalem and they would need to pay the half shekel temple tax so they would exchange money. From all the different areas where these Jewish people lived, there were all different kinds of currency and coins that they would use. But only one kind that they could use for the half shekel temple tax so they would bring their currency from where they lived and then have to exchange it for the proper kind. Well, that became big business because those at the temple charged these exorbitant fees to exchange money. Any of you ever traveled abroad and you have to do a currency exchange and there's a fee for that. Now the law of Moses also provided for the people to bring their own animals to the Passover. And they were to present them to the priest for approval before sacrificing them. You know the Passover lamb had to be a year old, had to be a male, had to have no spot, blemish, defect, or anything about it. Well, these money-hungry priests had taken advantage of this. And they had abused their authority to approve or disapprove the sacrificial animals until they, they had cornered the market. And it's probable that even if a worshiper did bring their own perfect spotless animal and show it to one of the priests, what do you think they would hear? No, this was not acceptable. Uh, you can go over here and purchase those we've already pre-approved. Well, guess how much those cost? Huge, exorbitant fees that they had to pay. And there could easily have been, scholars estimate, over a quarter of a million, over 250,000 animals slain during one Passover. Now you talk about making money hand over fist. They were just rolling it in. And historians also tell us that doves during that time, for, for the poor people they could offer a dove, they were selling for four bucks when they normally sold for a nickel. So Annas and all the people who worked for him were just making a fortune. And so Jesus walks into the midst of all this, hundreds, maybe thousands of people jamming into the temple area. It's like one big market, and in walks this one man with one small whip, and he runs everybody out. Now that's impressive all by itself, isn't it? That, that he just clears the temple in that way, cleanses the temple in that way, walks right in in the middle of their biggest observance, and he fouls up their entire system, drives them all out, pours out the coins of the money changers, turns their tables over. Well, the Jewish religious leaders couldn't dispute what he did because he had already done it, but they wanted to know in verse 18, what sign do you show to us seeing that you do these things? And notice Jesus' answer in verse 19. He says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. So what was the answer Jesus gave them? The resurrection. That was the sign, the resurrection. Because verse 21 tells us he was speaking of the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he'd said this. So you see, this is the promise of the resurrection. In fact, the only sign Jesus ever gave when, when challenged by the religious leaders was the resurrection. Remember over in Matthew chapter 16 that the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus. They said, show us a sign. And Jesus said, well, the only sign that will be given to this wicked and adulterous generation is the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? 
Say it again. The resurrection. Yeah, for as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The resurrection. Jesus would rise on the third day. So Jesus promised the resurrection. But he didn't stop at that. Because then he proved it. He proved it. And he proved it at least three times in the scripture. In Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, Jesus is nearing the city of Nain. And as he nears the city, here comes a funeral procession. He sees the body of a younger man upon the coffin or the bier or the, or the pall that they are carrying. He sees a woman standing nearby weeping, understanding that's the young man's mother. And so, feeling compassion for her, he walks up and says, stop weeping. And he walks over to whatever they are carrying him on. And he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the young man sat up, looked around. Jesus gave him back to his mother. And he raised that young man from the dead. And then over in Mark chapter 5 and verse 35 and following... Jairus has come to Jesus saying, my little girl is near death. Please come and, and help. And so Jesus takes off with Jairus on his way. You know what happens? The woman with the issue of blood comes up thinking, if I can just touch the fringe of his garment, I know I'll be healed. She is able to do that. She's healed. Jesus stops, turns around, and you have that conversation with that woman. Jairus must have been thinking, oh, come on, come on, hurry, hurry. And then just as they turn to go, here comes one of Jairus' servants and says, your little girl is, has died. Why bother the master any longer? And Jesus says to Jairus, don't worry. Just believe. And he goes and they get to Jairus' house and there are the professional paid mourners that are doing their job of wailing and mourning. And Jesus basically says, stop all this commotion. She's just asleep. And they laughed at him, but Jesus took Jairus and Jairus' wife, along with Peter, James, and John, goes up to where the little girl was lying and said, Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, arise. And she gets up, and Jesus said, give her something to eat. And he raises her from the dead. And then you come over to John chapter 11, because Jesus knew that he was going to die and rise again, but he also realized that his disciples didn't quite comprehend it all, so he gives them another demonstration of the kind of power that he held over death. And the scene he uses is the death of his close friend, Lazarus, his friend from Bethany. Lazarus dies. He's been dead and buried for four days. And when Jesus arrives, he meets Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, one and then the other, both of them end up saying the same thing to Jesus. If you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says to Martha, your brother shall rise again. Now the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in life after death, but many of the Jews did. And so Martha said to Jesus, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And that's when Jesus speaks those immortal words, those precious hope-giving words. And says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asked Martha. But I think he asks us that as well. Do you believe this? 
And so they take Jesus to the tomb where Lazarus is buried, and Jesus tells them to remove the stone. Martha objects, knowing he's been dead four days. There's going to be an odor. She knows there's no hope for her brother. But Jesus says in verse 40, Did I not say to you, if you believe, that you'll see the glory of God? And so they remove the stone. Jesus looks up to heaven, wanting the people to know he came from there, and he's, he's looking to the Father. He says, Father, I thank thee that thou heardest me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that thou didst send me. Then he cries out with that loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. You know, it's one thing to promise the resurrection. It's another thing altogether to prove it. I could stand up here today and say I can raise someone from the dead, but you wouldn't believe it, would you? Would you? No. Why? Never done it before. And you might say, okay, then prove it. Come on, we're going out to the cemetery, Bill. You're going to prove it. You know I couldn't do it. There's no way. I can't prove it. But with Jesus, <laughs> hey, there's no doubt. He promised the resurrection. Then he proved it by bringing Lazarus out of the tomb, just like he had raised Jairus' daughter and the son of the widow of Nain. Lazarus came forth. Jesus promised the resurrection. He proved the resurrection. Then he personified it. He personified it. Because, you see, the great climax of resurrection power is when Christ was raised himself from the dead. And there's no doubt he was dead. The Romans were expert executioners. They came up with crucifixion, and after crucifying someone, if they didn't die quickly enough, they'd go out and break their legs so they couldn't push themselves up while hanging there on the cross and grab another breath, and then they'd die more quickly of asphyxiation. And, but in accordance with the prophecy... They didn't break Jesus' legs because he's already dead. Not a bone of his body would be broken, the prophet said. And that came true. They did pierce his side and outflowed blood and water, but he was dead. No doubt about it. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus helped Joseph with the burial. And in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 9, it says, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter therefore also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he beheld the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also, and he saw and believed, for as yet they didn't understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. You see, the tomb was empty. Jesus personified the resurrection when he came out of the grave. And the world began saying, we've got an empty tomb, we don't know what to do with it. And it's amazing that even today, people will mock God and say, well, what difference does an empty tomb make? 
Well, it makes all the difference in the world. Because if you see, you see, if Jesus was right, and what he said when he promised the resurrection, and then he proved it by raising Jairus' daughter and the son of the widow of Nain and Lazarus, and when he did it for himself, if he's right about all that, he's probably right about everything else he ever said. Right? Yeah, and he is. He's right. The resurrection is so unique. No other leader in the world of any religion has ever promised a resurrection and then pulled it off. No one except Jesus. And that's what sets Christianity apart from all other religions like Buddhism and Islam and Hinduism and, and all the others. We serve a risen Savior. Amen? There's an empty tomb. The world still doesn't know what to do with it. They can't deny it. So he promised it, he proved it, and he personified it. And for our person up there on tech this morning, I think I might have redid the end of my sermon, so I don't know how the slides are going to go from here on. Okay, thanks Pam, you're for being flexible up there. But then he also personalized it. He personalized it for you and me. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal body through His Spirit which dwells in you. So, what's that saying? Very simply, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, you're going to rise from the dead. That's what it says. He personalized it. We can rise from the dead as well. Now let me just say that every person will rise from the dead. There will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Everybody gets eternal life. You just got to determine where you want to spend it. And that hinges on what you do with Jesus. But you must have the Holy Spirit within you in order to raise to a new life, an eternal life with the Lord in a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. And praise God that that is available to us through Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Praise God. This world is not all there is. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And so we will rise from the dead because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And how do we receive that Holy Spirit? Well, we receive it when we accept Christ as Lord and Savior. Just as Peter said in Acts 2, verse 38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have life. But if you have it, He's going to raise your mortal body from the dead to live eternally in His presence. Now, how's all that going to shake out? How's all that going to happen? How's God going to pull all that off? I have no idea. 
oh, we've all got our theories about how it's all going to happen, don't we? And we've, we've got our own personal beliefs. But, but listen to these words of Scripture from 1 Corinthians 15. Someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Well, you fool. That which you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you don't sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps a wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh isn't the same flesh. There's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, and the glory of the heavenly is one, the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, because star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first uh, man, Adam, became a living soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man's from the earth, earthy. The second man's from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we've borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at that last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Because of the resurrection. What wonderful words, what wonderful hope, what a wonderful promise. So let's... Let's bring it to this moment right now and the decisions that you need to make based on the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. What decisions do you need to make? Well, if you're not a Christian, if you've never accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, never obeyed the gospel, you need to accept him as your Lord and Savior. And do it today. Don't wait. Don't delay. You do that by believing that Jesus is the Son of the living God. You do that by confessing your faith in him. You do that by repenting of your sins, that godly sorrow that leads you to want to change your life and come back to the Lord. You do that by being immersed in water for the remission of your sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which you need so that your mortal body shall rise. And then you need to live the life, a life of faithfulness to the Lord. That's what you need to do. I know the great majority of you in this service have already done that. So what decision should we that are Christians make today based on this message? 
well, probably several things that we could come up with, but let me narrow the focus down to one. The resurrection has a way of motivating people. I can't explain it to you. I really don't think it needs explanation, but the resurrection does something to people. When the resurrection, when that truth hits home in your heart, it ought to motivate you. And you can see it in the Bible very clearly on the day of Pentecost after the resurrection. You remember how the disciples have been scared and frightened and were hiding up there in the upper room? But on the day of Pentecost, they're standing in front of thousands of people in Jerusalem and they're preaching this same Jesus whom you crucified. God's made him both Lord and Christ. What made the difference? The resurrection. Made all the difference. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin, told to shut their mouths, never again preach about Jesus. They said, you go ahead and judge whether it's right in the sight of God and men to say anything about Jesus, but we can't help but talk about him. What made the difference? The resurrection. And if you read every sermon and message preached by the disciples in the book of Acts, every single one of them will come back to the resurrection as a focal point. The resurrection has a way of motivating people. So, could it motivate us to do what the disciples did and witness? Is there any greater motivation than the resurrection for us to tell the world about Jesus? I think not. And the resurrection makes all the difference in that. So our question today, if a man dies, will he live again? Job might have thought no, but we know better because of Jesus, because of the resurrection. And all God's people said, amen. We're going to stand and sing a hymn of decision today. If you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray you'll do it today and that you won't put it off. He gives you the promise of eternal life. And he's going to raise you to a life that is beyond, beyond our imaginations. We can't even conceive it. Most of you, I know, are Christians. Let's go tell the world. There's something they need to hear. Let's stand and sing. Amen.